0: Before Damon John was hosting Shark Tank, he was a kid from Queens sewing hats by hand and selling them on the street. How did Damon turn that business into FUBU, a multi-billion dollar fashion company? He learned to out-hustle the competition every day. Damon's new podcast, Rise and Grind, gets entrepreneurs like Gary Vaynerchuk and Tyler the Creator to share secrets to outworking your way to the top, just like he did. Subscribe to Damon John's new podcast, Rise and Grind, in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Do you have big plans for the new year? Well, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea, your plans, your dream into a unique website. Once it lives online, people can find it. Showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Try it for yourself. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also here to tell you what this show is about. And I don't just mean this week's episode. Here's what the entire podcast, the Cracked Podcast, is all about. This is the premise. Being alive is more interesting than you think it is. That's our show premise. Whether we are talking about movies, psychology, history, science, or straight-up jokes, I aim to make this show an exploration of life that makes life itself more fascinating. Because being alive is cool. People should know. That's already also been our goal here. The past episodes you've heard already do that. We're not changing the show. I just like to say what the actual premise is because we don't say that enough. Also, I'm extra, extra excited about this week's episode because I think it hits that premise out of the park. Our guest is a longtime favorite of crack.com His name is Charles C. Mann. If you've read his book 1491 or the follow-up 1493, you probably fist-pumped hearing that. Please keep driving safely. Use both hands. For the rest of you, Charles C. Mann is a journalist, science writer, history expert, and all-around font of amazing information that proves being alive is more interesting than you think it is. His work has been a touchstone for lots of Cracked's pieces on history and science and the environment. And Charles's new book is called The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. As of when I'm taping this, Charles's book came out two days ago, and it's already number one on Amazon.com in multiple book categories. As of any time I would tape this, The Wizard and the Prophet is about the fascinating experience of being alive. Specifically, it's about what happens when a whole heck of a bunch of us are going to be alive real soon. According to experts, the Earth will have a population of 10 billion people in the year 2050. That is 32 years away from right now. Almost all of us listening to this will also be alive in that future. That's barely even the future. That's more of a calendar event, you know, like I'm adding it to my Google. And caring for 10 billion people, feeding and powering and hydrating 10 billion people will be tricky Partly because we can't do that for who we've got right now. And I mean right now. One of our many, many footnotes this week is an NPR story about Cape Town, South Africa. Starting on February 1st, which is Thursday, if you're listening to this when it comes out. Residents there have to cut their water use by over 40%. And either way, experts predict that the entire city will run out of water by April. As in, like, like this April. Like, like uh, the spring. So our work is cut out for us, and Charles's incredibly timely book celebrates two kinds of people doing that work. Charles frames them as wizards and prophets, with the wizards represented by agricultural innovator and cracked favorite Norman Borlaug. The prophets represented by environmentalist William Vogt, and both groups have centuries-long histories of lots of different people working in these two ways. The work to feed and hydrate and power the world, it didn't start yesterday. And the work to not kill the world by a climate change also did not start yesterday. And I had the best time talking to Charles all about the past, present, and most excitingly, future of that effort. We'll also get into why California evaporates away its own water, why photosynthesis is dumb, why there's so much else to cover. Let's, Let's let you hear it. Please sit back Or continue building your survival bunker for when the post-apocalypse resource wars begin and everyone's wearing leather for no good reason. I don't like it. Anyway, enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Charles C. Mann. I will be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I am joined by journalist, author, and world revealer, Charles C. Mann. His new book is The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show, Charles. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm totally delighted. I'm a little astonished to be called a world revealer, but I'll take it. I guess it's my superpower, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, I try. I try to overwhelm guests at the top of the show. That's my go-to. But you succeeded. I really am excited to talk to you because I'm a huge fan of your writing all over the place, especially your your previous book, 1491. I know because I've read the beginning of it. But uh, I'd love it if you could just tell the audience what led you to write this book, The Wizard and the Prophet. What was the moment that sparked it?
1: Well, it actually took a, quite a bit. The thing that probably most sparked it was uh, when my daughter was born 19 years ago. You know, and I don't know if you've. Ever have a child, but if you're a dad, one of the things that happens to you is that after all the excitement, you're thrown out of the hospital or whatever wherever it's taking place. (laughs) While the people who've actually done something, the mother and the daughter, you know, recuperate. And so inevitably, it's three o'clock in the morning, February in my case, and I was standing there outside the hospital in uh, February in New England, sort of feeling overwhelmed. And suddenly, popped into my head that when my daughter was my age, there'd be almost 10 billion people in the world, and I sort of thought for a second. I, I knew this before, but it really hit me. You know, I, I guess I felt like I had more skin in the game. And I thought, boy, you know, how's that going to work? And I'm a science writer. And so, you know, over the next few years, when I was talking to scientists and they had any thoughts about this, you know, we'd have a drink, uh, coffee afterwards or something. And I would say, hey, look, you know, in 2050, there's going to be almost 10 billion people in the world. And the world is getting more affluent. So a huge number of those people are going to be middle class. Like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to feed everybody? How are we going to provide water to everybody? And they would tell me and then uh, what they thought about it. And I realized after a while that the answers I was getting fell into two broad categories, yeah. each of which, at least in my mind, is associated with a dead guy nobody's ever heard of. Somewhere along the lines, I thought, you know, maybe I should write about this.
0: What's the, the world population now? I think I've heard it's around uh, six and a half billion, seven billion, something no, like that.
1: No, nope, no, you're off by a billion. It's almost oh. seven and a half billion. And, oh, it's uh, not up on me. You know, as I said, a huge number of those people are going to be middle class. You know, It's going to be almost 10 billion in 2050 or so. And uh, they're going to want all the things that you and I want. You know, they're going to want a nice cell phone. They're going to want fancy glasses or you know, whatever. Uh, they're going to want occasional treats. At one point, I was going to call the book uh, Toblerone for 10 billion, but uh, my editor vetoed that. He said, nobody knows put Toblerone. I said, everybody knows, but I lost that argument.
0: I'm with you. It's the only triangular candy bar. Like, come on. Yeah, not exactly. Everybody right knows there. what it is. Yeah. And I thought, you know,
1: Toblerone <laughs> for 10 billion, that, Sort of encapsulates the dilemma. You think you, you, there's there's tons of Toblerone around. You think 10 billion people is there 10 billion people's worth of it? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I, if if there is, we're all going to be real full of chocolate. It's going to be great. Well, and uh, and so you mentioned two two deceased guys, and the book is called The Wizard and the Prophet. Uh, talk about the Wizard and the Prophet a bit, please.
1: Yeah, and this isn't like a quiz, you know, where you're where you're supposed to know who these people are. In fact, most people don't know um, who they are, and. I hope part of the fun of the book is that you find out about these two guys who were really important, but you weren't taught about in school. And the wizard of my title, you know, I should probably technically call him something like a, a Schumpeterian technophiliac ameliorist, but you can see why I picked wizard.
0: Well, that was so many large adjectives, I... I yeah, I, I know, exactly. I mean, that's Bye. accurate, but it's <laughs>
1: comprehensive, right? I yeah. choose wizard, like techno Wizard, right? And his name is Norman Borlaug, and he's the primary figure in what's been called the Green Revolution. And this is a combination of, you know, advanced types of crops, like, you know, wheat and corn, and um, you know, high-intensity synthetic fertilizer and irrigation that, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, led farmers around the world to be able to double or triple or even quadruple the amount of grain that they harvested from a, from a parcel of land. And in the 1960s, you know, when I was growing up, it was very common for people to say in the 70s and 80s that there were going to be vast famines and hundreds of millions of people were going to starve to death, and that didn't happen, thank God. And the, Big reason for that was uh, the the Green Revolution, which Norman Borlaug was the primary figure. When he died, people said things like, "Oh, he saved a billion lives" and so forth. And who knows what exactly what the number is, but that, you get the idea of the impact that he had and the Green Revolution had. The uh, prophet, uh, the title, and I also have a whole jumble of adjectives for him, but I'll call him a prophet. Is William Vote, and it's spelled V-O-G-T, but it's spelled like you know, go out and vote. And yeah. he is the primary guy, the main founder of the modern environmental movement, which I regard as the only successful ideology of the 20th century um, to, to have emerged from that. And his insight, uh, whereas Borlaug's idea was, you know, you put on your thinking cap, you, put on, you use science and technology, and you produce more, and you make more, and that's, that's how you solve these uh, problems. The insight of VOTE was, no, wait a minute, there's limits. And uh, they have different names. You know, scientists call them different names carrying capacity, planetary boundaries, ecological limits, whatever. They all sort of mean the same thing, which is that if you extract too much from the Earth, you'll wreck the ecosystems on which our life depends, and very bad things will then uh, happen. And so his idea is, you know essentially put on your cardigan sweater and turn down the thermostat and eat lower on the food chain and all the things that I think that you're probably very f- familiar with. And if you think about it, these two ideas for how to deal with the future are kind of the opposite of each other. One is saying, be smart and make more, and the other is saying, you know, be smart and use less. And it's, it's hard to reconcile them. Vote and Borlaug, amazingly enough, got their ideas at the same place at the same time. And uh, came to completely opposite conclusions. They met once, briefly. They hated each other, so far as I can tell. They never spoke again, and their, you know, descendants have been fighting ever since. And that's sort of what the book is about.
0: As you mentioned, they met once. It really plays very cinematically in the book. They were born about 12 years apart. They met one time in 1946 when Vote visited Borlaug's project in Mexico City. And then not only did they never speak again, but apparently vote tried to get Borlaug defunded
1: immediately after. Yes, it, yeah, he wrote this whole <laughs> series of letters. Like, I know what you're doing is a really good idea and it's very important to be, but in fact, you should be actually doing something else. <laughs> right. And a masterful bureaucratic stab in the back. It didn't work, but you, you know, you have to hand it to him. This is this is the ultimate evil, right, in today's society. You defund the other guy.
0: Cash rules everything around me. You know, cream. Don't <laughs> go after it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one thing you mentioned before, I want to. Uh go back to it you you mentioned the idea that environmentalism is the only successful ideology of the twentieth century what do you What do you mean by that
1: yeah now this isn't a put down. What I mean is you know an ideology is like a way you have of understanding the world and what is good and what is bad and how you should go about doing things i mean that that's what it ideology is, and if you think about it. Um, environmentalism is. It's a way of understanding the world in terms of these limits and the ecosystems within it and the necessity to was with working within natural processes and an idea of what's good, you know, working well within these natural processes and what's bad is transgressing them or wrecking them. And it's a very, very powerful idea. And it's you know, still very, very powerful. And a lot of the other things that came up with in the 20th century, fascism, communism, and that sort of thing, they haven't lasted so well. So uh, you know, it seems pretty straightforward to me that environmentalism is the only real you know, systematic scheme of ideas that came out of the 20th century that's still uh, roaring strong today.
0: Now that you put it that way, that's, uh, that makes sense to me. For some reason, I, th- I thought of democracy as from that century, too, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, buddy. But you're right. But well, democracy is pretty that. good. I'm not putting down yeah. democracy, but that's really <laughs> more
1: from the 18th century. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe goes back to the Greeks in some way.
0: When you say that these two guys are not that well known, I not not to trumpet our own website. I had heard of Borlaug a little bit from a cracked article that mentioned, hey, this guy saved maybe a billion people, depending on how you estimate it and depending on how you view the accomplishments of his Green Revolution. And that was all I knew about him. And I had never heard of vote. Even though, right. as far as I can tell, and and I think the book explains it very well, he is so important to our approach of hey, let's try to reduce, reuse, recycle, save. Like, let's see the world as something that we could use up if we do it wrong.
1: Exactly. I mean, he is the guy who put together those ideas. You know, his term for it was carrying capacity, and that was originally carrying capacity. You know, back in the late 19th century they had freighters and, you know, they'd say, what is the carrying capacity? Which meant, you know, how much could they carry before the freighter sank? And, and then uh, some ecologists started saying, you know, it's sort of like that with something like a meadow. Like, how many cows can you put on a meadow before they eat up the meadow and it, it, it can't produce any more grass? And that was the carrying capacity. And what vote did is he stretched that idea kind of like taffy and he covered the whole earth. And he said, you know, how much can the earth support before things start breaking down. His idea was, in a sense, he invented the environment. And what I mean by that was, not the word itself, I've been around for a long time, but before, you know, when, when the Greeks were talking about the environment, it was always this set of circumstances around you, and that shaped people's characters. So that people from the north you know were, were sort of stony and obdurate and you know terse and that sort of thing and people from the south were you know where it was warm they liked luxury and were lazy and that that, that kind of thing it was it was the set of circumstances that acted on people he flipped that around and said no the environment is what is out there and it is that people act on it usually badly <laughs> and so the yeah. whole idea of saving the environment you know which you hear all the time you got to be careful with the environment that comes from him
0: yeah, and it's amazing how recent it is, too. Now it's a punchline in comedies set in the recent past. like In the movie Anchorman, there's a whole scene where they just aggressively litter. And it's funny that, oh, right, those people in the recent past didn't realize that they shouldn't litter.
1: Because of the environment, right? Yeah, but we and, just um,
0: figured it out. It's amazing.
1: But they're right in, in in a funny way. It is this very recent thing, and it's so pervasive in us. It's hard for us to realize that it wasn't always there, and I don't want to present myself as like you know, Mr. Super Smart. I mean, in the research of this book, I discovered this, and I was like, "Holy crap! I didn't know that." So I, I was I was surprised as you, and uh, for me, you know, when I'm working on a project, if I'm learning about stuff and I'm going, "Huh, I didn't know that," that's sort of, I think, gee, maybe the reader will be that way too.
0: Votes well, look at kind of how history is and where he essentially invented this idea of environmentalism, and there's uh, his words on how, how we treated the planet before that are really stark. At one point he says, our forefathers were one of the most destructive groups of human beings that have ever raped the earth. They moved into one of the richest treasure houses ever opened to man, and in a few decades it turns millions of acres of it into a shambles. Um, it, it seems like he was a very dour guy a lot of the time. Is that, is that accurate?
1: I mean, he was upset about what he saw there's also a tone that's in many environmental books that for better or worse, I think he kind of pioneered, which is um, you know the idea that people are bad and they they wreck stuff and they 're heedless and greedy and stupid and uh, all all, all, the, all this, this sort of thing and that that really comes from his book he He wrote the first i call it we 're all going to hell books you know and you, you know what I mean by that the the population bomb rachel carson's book al gore 's book and often they're about how stupid and short-sighted and, and, and greedy we are, and they kind of thunder. And vote, you know, for better or worse, was a pioneer of that. But in his defense, now you read it and you sort of want to duck. You know, it's like the, the author is throwing uh, rocks at you from the, from the within the book. There wasn't much of a concept of paying attention. So the the air by uh, American cities in the 1940s and 50s, when he was right, it was really dirty. I can recall as a as a little boy being taken to my parents' friends' house in, in New York City and being told mm-hmm. that I couldn't wear light colored clothing because it would just get really dirty in New York. Um, don't lean wow. up against the building, they're filthy, and, uh, and you know, th- this sort of thing, and that you couldn't wear contact lenses because there was so much junk in the air. So he was really re- and writing about a time when things were, in fact, really a mess. You know, the, it wasn't until the 1960s that the um, rivers in Ohio started catching fire, but by the time he was writing, it was pretty obvious that they were filthy and that we were killing all the fish. So he had a reason to be mad.
0: I'm from the Midwest, and a lot of my family would just tell me that you should assume the Great Lakes and a lot of our rivers are filthy. And that time a, a river caught on fire in Cleveland, that's the normal. Like any, Anything cleaner than that is surprising, and that's the way the world is, And because I, I, I think they're from not that long ago when, uh, when things were gross.
1: Yeah, and Lake Erie, um, we lived in Ohio for a little bit, and there are large parts of Lake Erie you were not supposed to swim in because they were, they were dangerous and this is you know still true in some parts of the world i you know for a while i lived in rome and i was horrified when somebody fell the the river tiber goes through the the rome yeah. in italy and somebody fell into the river and they died they died from falling into the river no it was way. that bad
0: isn't that the iconic river of the roman empire Like, isn't that the whole yeah, and yeah. it, <laughs> it was
1: really was a mess that's incredible and uh, you know we 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 hear the thundering tone in what you just uh, read and, you know, to, to some extent, that's his choice, you know, to, to thunder at the reader and wave a skeleton at the reader. But also, we forget how much we've cleaned up.
0: Sure, sure. I think you make a point, and a very good one in the book, that both of these, this wizard and prophet, um, uh, Borlaug and Vote, were both overall optimistic. Like, they both wanted yeah. to point to a way forward to save our own planet that they, they hoped we could get to. That we could either, either by saving enough or creating enough new stuff, we could make it. Uh, Because you also pick out, and I believe you knew her in life, Lynn Margulis,
1: the scientist? Right, Lynn Margulis, yeah. Margulis. And she was a great biologist who lived down the street from me. I live in Amherst, Massachusetts, and she taught at the university, which is in our town. And uh, I didn't know her real well, and she kind of thought, I think, that I was a nice guy, but I was sort of a sentimental sap. Um, (laughs) And the reason for that is that she was a microbiologist, so she studied, you know, uh, bacteria and viruses and protists and algae and all the, you know, these, these single celled creatures, she knew that they make up, you know, 99% of the biomass of the, uh, of the world. I mean, if, if, you know, Martians or whoever were coming to us and they were really objective, they would regard this as a planet of bacteria and, you know, protozoa and so forth with this little film on the surface. And that would be us that it wasn't very important. (laughs) So she thought you know, mammals were like cute, but the main action was, you know, it's like a football game, right? And uh, sorry for the sports metaphor, but you know, there's the main players doing the thing. And then on the fringes are these sort of colorful yell kings and cheerleaders and so forth dancing around and making noise. And, you know, you can get distracted by them and they're cute. But what the actual game is, is the football players, right? And so for her, the microorganisms, that's actually what's happening in terms of life. And then there's us, you know, and the pandas <laughs> and so forth. And, uh, you know, so she thought it was kind of funny that I would get all worked up about panda bears and that sort of thing. Oh, they're so dangerous, she would say. You know, Are you all worried <laughs> about them?
0: <laughs> she, was, she was doing this publicly. She was like doing bits about how pandas are going to die and, and we're all too sentimental about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, no, did she want pandas to die? No. Of course not. She, Um, think that I had a sentimental view of what life was about and was sort of biased in favor of mammals. She thought mammals were boring. You know, in terms of genetic creativity, bacteria, protozoa are way ahead of us in terms of what they're able to do. So her point of view was, look, the rules are the rules. That's Darwin's great insight. Is that the processes and laws of biology apply to everything, including people, and that 's why people get upset with with uh, Darwinism um, and evolution right to this day because he says these rules apply to people as well we 're not special and That was a big refrain of hers. Uh, she would say, "Oh, you think people are special <laughs> you know <laughs> and um, and from her point of view, we are just sort of glorified uh, protozoa in that we obey the same laws, and one of the laws in her view was uh that uh you know, uh, that normally species are kept within certain bounds by natural selection. You know, predators um, eat them or they, run, they, don't, they have limited amounts of resources. But every now and then a species escapes the bounds of natural selection. And then what it does is it grabs all the resources it can, reproduces like mad, and then expands and expands and grabs and grabs until it, either drowns in its own wastes or runs out of resources and then very bad things happen to it. And so her line was, it is the fate of every successful species to wipe itself out. And she thought we had, um, we're one of those successful species and our fate, you know, by laws of biology are that we're gonna wipe ourselves out and we should just get grown up about this. Mm-hmm. This is what's going to happen and stop kidding ourselves. So, so she thought, you know, me worrying about the, you know, uh, oh, what about people, you know, listen, living creatures, this is what life does. Just get used to it. So, you know, if I would be moaning about, oh, you know, the Congress isn't doing anything about climate change. And it was like her reaction was like, well, duh. <laughs> you know, what do you expect?
0: Right. They're just another part of the film that doesn't know right, what's right.
1: coming. Right. 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 <laughs> exactly. The uh, species don't pick up after themselves. That's the rule of law. And then you know, bad consequences happen to them. But, you know, life goes on. And in a million years, the planet will be just fine. It's just we won't be in it. That was her point. <laughs> A friend of mine called that a point of view, a view of concern so lofty that it's impossible to distinguish from lack of concern. <laughs> she, she likes life, but at such a remove, you know, at such a distance, it's impossible to tell from not caring at all.
0: <laughs> right. She's not a, like, human beings patriot. Like, she's not like, that's no, the life no, that is to no. make it. She's like, no, life's really neat, just all around.
1: Yeah, it's all around us, and we're, we're, we're one little <laughs> tiny, very insignificant, self-important part of it. And uh, the laws will take care of us, but, you know, life will continue. So yeah. she was, you know, when people say save the planet, she said the planet's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the chunk, of the book, and and we'll get into the four areas of life on Earth for humans that that you break down in it. But uh, one of them is climate change, and uh, you lead with talking to her about the great oxidation event, which was an event that I didn't even know happened, but in hindsight, it obviously happened at some point in history.
1: Yeah, what, what happened is cyanobacteria, this type of big type of bacteria with many, many species in it, evolved photosynthesis. And what that happens in photosynthesis is that the the light from the sun plants use that, you know, or single cell creatures uh, to break up water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then they grab the carbon dioxide and they combine that with the hydrogen to form carbohydrates and all the proteins and and so forth, and it ends up releasing oxygen into the air. And we breathe that oxygen, but at the time, Oxygen's highly reactive, and there wasn't much of it, and it was poison for almost yeah. everything that had evolved up till then, and the great oxidation event, um, as, it, as it's called, is thought to have wiped out something like 99% of the species that lived, and her point was cyanobacteria don't clean up after themselves. They just happen to be lucky to be able to survive this, and you know, we're doing the same thing only on a much smaller and more trivial scale. Like, oh. we can't even do a very good extinction event. <laughs>
0: Yeah, get you it, know, it. We'll together, take out 1% or
1: 2% of the creatures that, 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 that ever lived. Cyanobacteria did 99%. Take that, people. You know, was her point of view.
0: I love the idea that, like, us wiping out the dodo is amateur. It's like, ah, yeah, they, that's yeah. barely even a dent. Come
1: on. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys. You can do, you know, you're not even bacteria league yet.
0: Well, and, and also the idea that the oxygen we breathe is the OG carbon dioxide. Like, it was the first yeah. gas that we had too much of. And <laughs> right. now we live on it and we're doing too much of the other one. Great. Really. Really, really yeah. fascinating.
1: Right. Serves us right.
0: <laughs> it's all karmic. It's all a payoff.
1: <laughs> so, you know, there, there's something sort of um, weirdly comforting, even if it's completely nihilistic, about thinking about it, things in that terms.
0: So we are talking about climate change a bit, but you, in the book you break out, what we need to figure out for the 10 billion people that we'll probably have in 32 years, as of the taping yeah. The things we need to work out, you, you sort of tie them to the four classical elements, which is fun.
1: The, the four things I, I think of as the biggies, you know, are, are we gonna have enough food for everybody? Is there enough water for everybody? Are we gonna have enough energy for everybody? And what about climate change? And I suddenly realized that earth is, of course, food, and um, water is, well, water's water. And energy is fire and uh, climate change is air.
0: As far as these four things that we need to work out for the mass of people, is any of them the most pressing? I I know they're all interdependent, but is is any of them the one we need to tackle the most urgently?
1: It it sort of depends, this is kind of a Weasley answer, I'm sorry, um, on what you mean (laughs) by urgent. Because The question is, which one will get us into trouble fastest is one kind of urgent, and which one will have the biggest long-term consequences is another kind. So the one that I would think that could get us into trouble fastest is probably water. Um, one of the big surprises to me to learn as I was researching the book is really how little water there is. And you look at the picture of the Earth from space, right? It's three quarters covered with water or something like that. Um, and you think that there must be a massive amount of it. Uh, but in fact, that's really just on a film on the surface you know a little uh, skin of water on the surface and really if you took all the water of the world including the rivers and the you know the the um, water and underground um, storage and all the oceans and everything and put it into a single ball it would only be a ball 870 miles in diameter which is not that big and worse 97% of it um is the oceans, right? It's salt water, it's undrinkable, it's even toxic. And so then you get to uh, you know, a ball that's, you know, uh barely 100 miles on a side or something and uh that ball, most of that is locked up in glaciers, so you can't get it, or is deep underground, um and can't get it and or contaminated. And so the actual amount of available drinkable usable fresh water is just a ball about 35 miles on a side. And that's not very much. Wow. And so it's kind of alarming that people say that the demands for fresh water are going to go up by about uh, 50% by 2050. And you think, oh boy, where's that going to come from? And of course, yeah. the wizards and um, and the prophets have completely different answers. And so the wizards say, oh, what we're going to do is have giant desalination plants powered by nuclear power, and then we're going to have these huge water projects like they have in California or Israel or something to channel all this, this water. And the prophets sort of say, are you crazy? The, you know, the, not only are those ridiculously expensive, but the desalination plants release huge amounts of salt into the ocean, and it wipes out coral reefs and all that sort of stuff, and uh, the fact is that we waste a huge amount of water, and the smart thing to do is to be a lot more thrifty about what we already have and have, you know, low-flush toilets and uh, low-flow um, showers and, um, to st- stop um, pumping water into the desert to grow rice in California. One of the really weird things you can Drive down the Central Valley of California and see these irrigated rice fields in 106-degree heat. And they have the water from the Colorado River that's actually just shimmering up into the air. And so there's many things you could do to reduce um, the amount of water use. And, of course, prophets say that's what we should do. And the wizards say, are you crazy? That's really expensive and difficult and requires people to jump through all kinds of hoops. Let's just make more water.
0: Right. <laughs> Let's uh, create more. Yeah. And,
1: and the... Create more water, giant desalination plants, yeah
0: and and to remind people cuz we touched on it before but the wizard would be the borlog style thing if we can use technology to just create more supply or more opportunity for the right. thing and then The vote profit type thing is let's save what we've got because uh, recycle and reuse
1: and um, and refresh yes and uh, in water they're called the path of you know the hard path and the soft path and these guys have been fighting for decades.
0: That jumped out to me the 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 hard path soft path thing. I feel like terms for any issue that we face are very very important. Like for instance, I feel Mm -hmm. like climate change. Was very poorly branded from the start. We should have come up with a much scarier name for it, rather than that like responsible, accurate name. You know, uh, right. I feel like hard path, soft path. One sounds cooler. You know, like hard path sounds like an action movie. That feels very exciting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, no, so, right, exactly. Climate change and uh, and the environmental issues have a branding problem.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I I don't know how to solve it. Maybe just knowing more. That that seems like a thing to right. do. Right. With the water issue in general, it seems like you mentioned distribution across the earth mm-hmm. being an issue. Like back to my back to my Midwest background. Like we always had the Great Lakes. We never thought about right. freshwater lacks ever. And then I live in California now, where that was the dominant news story for most of the time I've lived here. Is that the state might run out of water completely? It's crazy. Right.
1: And California is the seventh biggest economy in the world. You know, if it was a single economy, and so. The idea that it would run out of water—I mean, that's like a major country. That's like France running out of water, or Germany, or something running out of out of water. It's a very, very big deal. You know, even though you've had a reprieve, obviously these issues are not over. Right now, there's a big fight in California where you are over the Sacramento Delta and that huge water project to channel the last remaining large source of, you know, unmessed with water um, from the north to to the south. And it's, I think it's a $20 billion project or something to go alongside the California water project that you already have and the state water project that you already have, which are some of the biggest construction projects that human beings have ever done.
0: Because in the book, you pick out California and then Israel slightly before it as two places where the wizard Borlaug type people have constructed solutions. They've just moved the water. Right. Is that is that the... Only option we have for evening out the uh, sort of inequities of which water is where.
1: Well, also though, in both places, profits have really stuck up. And in one of the leading centers of the profits is the Pacific Institute, um, which is in Oakland. And uh, there's a guy named Peter Gleick, who is, you know, Mr. Water Profit, if I, if I could call him that. You know, his argument is that uh, what the Brown administration and, you know, some of his predecessors are doing is completely crazy. They've screwed up um, the rivers. They're um, wasting huge amounts of water. And the fact is that we simply should not have gigantic golf courses in Southern California. We should not have, you know, huge um, irrigation channels that are conducting the Colorado River all the way down there and don't even have any top on them, so it just evaporates into the air. Something like two-thirds of the water that is in the irrigation system in California just gets evaporated. Really? Um, yeah, it's, there's nice. a tremendous amount of waste. It would be expensive to roof it all over, but you know, that would, if you did that, you would not need nearly as many giant new water projects and you would have you know, fewer screwed up rivers.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine so.
1: Well, I mean, if you've gone down the Central Valley, it's really hot there, and you see these huge open channels.
0: I don't know if people have driven up and down California in the audience, but I, I have, and it's, it's a place that I, in many parts of it, I just wanted to keep driving through very quickly because it was so hot. It was just very uncomfortable right. physically, and it, and yeah, obviously, all the water must be evaporating. They should fix that.
1: Right. I mean, I remember the first time I was ever in the Central Valley, and I was with uh, my friend who's a, a, a he was a photographer, and he's become my friend, Peter Menzel, who lives in Napa, and he knew something about uh, the area, and uh, we were just driving, and through these rice fields, and there's all this water, and it's 106 degrees, and it's just shimmering into the air. And I said, "Where does this water come from? Because it's desert." And he said, <laughs> "And he says Colorado." And I said, "Does it make any sense to bring water all the way from Colorado just to evaporate it?" He said, "Sure does. If you're a rice farmer."
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Well, I even I even remember before I moved to California, seeing the movie Chinatown. And thinking that movie was fictional. I was like, there's no way California stole a state's water to build L.A. That's crazy. And it turns out, I believe it's all accurate. Yeah, it's all true.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't um, think that Jack Nicholson got his nose cut, but uh, the the basic idea is all true. (laughs)
0: Each Body On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective, world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. It's the total package to help you become the total package this year. What was your New Year's resolution for fitness, for getting in shape? Did you have one? I wanted to do it better in general, and I found not only does Beachbody On Demand help me do that, there's actually a lot of different ways. They've got everything from a, a very, very intense workout like P90X to 10-minute workouts I can fit in between things, approaches to yoga, and all kinds of other ways to, from any device I have, get more fit. Beachbody On Demand is convenient because there's no need to go to schedule a class or drive to a place. They have workouts that range from 10 minutes to over one hour that are all completely accessible on any web-enabled device, all for less than a gym membership. With over 600 different workouts, Beachbody On Demand has programs for any fitness level you are at. And Beachbody On Demand includes extensive nutritional content, all proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. You need to give their service a try, and right now our listeners can get a free trial membership of Beachbody On Demand when you text CRACKED, that's our site's name, C-R-A-C-K-E-D, to the number 303030, that's 303030, 303030. you will get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutritional information for free, just text CRACKED to 303030. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? Why wait until the new year to set your plans in action? It's 2018. Let's do stuff now. The future's coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers that make it easy to turn your idea into a whole new unique website that is specific to you. You can customize everything about it. Also, that website will be optimized for mobile right out of the box. I keep telling people... Everyone's using the internet primarily on their phones, especially younger people, and so that's the way to make your website work. You want to make it so when they open it up on the thing that they carry in their pocket, it looks great, and with Squarespace it will. You can use their analytics to help you grow your website in real time. There is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever, and if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. So let's do this. Head to Squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is Squarespace.com. Offer code CRACKED. moving to the next challenge in the book uh, being food because I also learned from it that I guess the majority of our fresh water goes to growing food uh, rather than people right. drinking 70, it. Right.
1: Something like 70% of all water goes to um, agriculture. So then this is how these problems are interconnected because you know obviously if there's going to be more people, you're going to need to grow more food exactly how much depends on what those people eat. If those people eat a lot of meat, then you have to grow a lot of grain to grow the food, uh, grain so that the cattle eat it, and the, and the, the, and the sheep and you know all these other animals that we eat for meat eat it, and so that the impact is, is huge. So that means there's more water. So it turns out that if you're you know, eating your burger, in a certain weird way, you're eating water in California. <laughs> Or the Middle West, you know, is where it comes from the Oglala Aquifer, which is this huge aquifer um, underneath the, um, most of the southern part of the mid- Middle West and that we're draining um, r- rather rapidly. So in that way, the problems are, are intertwined. But, you know, again, wizards and prophets fight over what to do we need to grow more food the wizards say well obviously the answer is you know genetically modifying the food you know the GMOs is it's called genetically modified organisms and you have superfoods and um, I focus on an example of what they're talking about which is this amazing project called the c4 rice project now I'm going to disappeared down a rabbit hole for a second. <laughs> I, I hope it's okay with yours. Well, the, it's
0: great. Before you do, like, when we talk sure. about Borlaug and vote, it seems like Borlaug did uh, specifically tackled this food issue primarily, right? Yes. Like he's, he was famous for breeding different kinds of crops, first in Mexico and then across the world. And that green revolution is crops that can grow more places, can yield more food and uh, feed uh, possibly a billion more people, depending on how you measure it.
1: Yes, exactly. Not only did he do this, but then he became the emblem of the idea that, you know, science and technology properly applied will let us produce our way. And so the next green revolution, you know, as they sometimes call it, they, do, they see it for having from GMOs. One of the things that they're trying to do is change the way photosynthesis works in rice. Uh, rice is the world's most important food, you know, is eaten by more people than any other kind of uh, food. It's the subsistence of Asia, which is the you know, most populous part of the world. There's several types of photosynthesis. And photosynthesis has a, a key enzyme, and an enzyme is a, is a biological catalyst. It's, it's something that participates in a chemical reaction, makes it happen, but isn't itself affected on it. I sort of jokingly say it's like one of those pedestrians that dart out into the street, cause a car crash, and then run back without being hit themselves. <laughs> and what it does is it grabs carbon dioxide from the air, shoves it into the reactions that cause photosynthesis, and goes back and looks for more and it is both incredibly slow, is maybe the slowest enzyme known. Your body has lots and lots of enzymes in it, thousands of them, and they typically catalyze, to use that word, thousands of reactions a second. And... Rubisco, which is this one, does two or three a, a second. So it's just unbelievably, so it's a total couch potato. And then it's like Mr. Magoo, <laughs> it grabs the wrong thing a lot of the time. It, instead of grabbing carbon dioxide, it grabs oxygen, which in the cells, all the cells have this whole elaborate mechanism to get rid of the oxygen, reprime the Rubisco, and get it all over again. Evolution has never been able to improve it. So photosynthesis, which is this sort of miracle that which we all depend, because it produces all the plants which we eat, um, and all the plants that all the things that we eat, eat, it has this secret in it that it has the worst, slowest, stupidest couch potato <laughs> is, laziest enzyme at the basis. It's unbelievably inefficient. You know, no matter how ADHD you think you are, Rubisco's worse. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: It's got an efficiency of like one thousandth of 1% or something. It's just terrible.
0: Yeah, I'm sure I... Our- our plant listeners are very offended right now. They are full of Rubisco, yeah, exactly. and I, I want to emphasize yeah. that for people because I I didn't know that prior to the book. Not only are there multiple kinds of photosynthesis, I had no idea about that, but also that the most common one, the primary one that operates on this uh, system called Rubisco, is incredibly inefficient and and it's it's like a slapstick comedy character. Like it's it's really just yeah. flailing around. It's great.
1: Yeah, and in fact. The way, one of the ways that plants get around the fact that it's just such a mess is that they make incredible amounts of rubisco and half the weight of most plant leaves is rubisco. It's the most common protein on earth. There's like, a, you know, estimates like there's 11 pounds of rubisco for every person on earth.
0: Right, so it's what's in so leaves, that gives you,
1: essentially. You know, the plants have to just make so much of it because it's so inefficient and incompetent. Some plants have evolved this mechanism, which is like an end run around rubisco's stupidity and incompetence. <laughs> and what they do To prevent the rubisco from grabbing oxygen, they stuff all the rubisco into these special cells that wrap around the veins, called bundle sheath cells. So I'm not expecting to remember it. I just wanted to show you that I actually know what it um, (laughs) is—the name. And what happens is something else grabs the carbon dioxide, shoves it into these special cells, and then rubisco can do its thing. And in these cells, there's almost no oxygen, so that even though it's still very slow. It's like the way you handle the fact that Mr. Magoo is grabbing the wrong thing by not giving him the opportunity to grab the wrong thing. <laughs> right. And um, both plants are much more efficient. And I don't know if you um, grew up in, in the Middle West. Did you ever mow your lawn? Yeah, sure. Did you have a lawn? Yeah, slug? yeah, yeah. We I did. Yeah. Well, if you do, you'll mow it. And then you'll notice that in three days, the crabgrass grows up really fast and the regular grass has grown just a little bit. Right, And, yeah. it caused and my dad, the crabgrass no an other kind of photosynthesis, which is called, and again, because biologists aren't good at names, it's called C4 photosynthesis. And the regular kind of photosynthesis is called C3. And the same thing, you know, if you plant wheat and corn next to each other, the corn just grows up really, really tall, really fast. And that's because corn is basically a C4 plant and wheat is a C3 plant. And rice is a C3 plant. And what they want to do is change the architecture of it to make it into a C4 plant. And this is, Compared to normal genetic engineering, the normal genetic engineering is where they put, you know, like a bacterium from a fish or something in a tomato and then it stays longer <laughs> in the shelf or something. Right. And compared to that, this is the difference between a Boeing 787 and a paper airplane.
0: Yeah, it seems so
1: fundamental. Yeah, it's hugely more amb- amb- ambitious.
0: Well, you mentioned early in the show the idea that, oh, there are things that you just never picked up in school that were always a thing. Like, I, all of us were taught photosynthesis as a concept and none of us right. were taught that there are different kinds and and some of them work way better than the other ones. And, right, and that's right. such an no amazing hate. project right. to switch it.
1: Ripping off the lid of um, this unsavory side of photosynthesis, right? <laughs> evolution's great screw up. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> and also uh, you cite various agronomists, which is a great name for a discipline. As far as our food goes, by the year 2050, depending on estimates, some of them think that we need to be harvesting 50 percent more food. So uh, where mm-hmm. we're getting two grains of rice now, we need three how do we get there? How do, how do we get a whole heck of a lot more food?
1: Right. And some of them think we need to double the amount. And you know, it oh, really boy. depends on how much meat people think, you know, we're, we're going to eat in 2050. If we keep eating meat the way we do now, and, you know, everybody becomes like a North American and, you know, wants to have their steak every week, we might have to grow twice as much food. So it's twice as much grain. So it, it's really not, not clear, but No matter what, you have to grow a lot more. And so the wizard's answer, the Borlaug answer, is to do this super genetically engineered crops and just produce a whole lot more. The prophets say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we don't need to do that. This is like, you know, from their point of view, industrial agriculture with all the pollution and erosion and so forth that it causes is like a fire. And we're using GMOs, these genetically modified organisms, to solve its problems is a little bit like pouring gasoline on a fire to put it out. And, you know that's nuts they think that's just going exactly the wrong direction wow. and what you should do is ch- totally change the way we farm and have these much more complicated farms that grow many 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 different crops we probably should eat less meat and we should grow more tree crops and tubers which are vastly more productive and inflict vastly less damage on the land
0: yeah and, and again a-
1: so you see this fight two people look at the same thing see the same problem and head absolutely opposite directions.
0: It will take enormous work to do both things, too. Like it's, right. it's not like one of them is like, keep it the same. Like they both think we need to get to work uh, over these next 32 years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One says, oh, I think we can do this if we do the biggest plant science Scientific project ever, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then um, disseminate it and spread it around the world. And the other says, "Oh, you can't do that. Let's instead totally change the way agriculture works all over the world."
0: Looking at the next challenge here, energy with with water and food. Those are things that a lot of people have enough of, and, and a few people don't, and, and it's tragic that they don't. With energy, uh, as you say, that if we have 10 billion people, especially if they want middle class lives. We're going to need to not only supply energy to them, we're going to need to backfill and supply energy to the 1.2 billion people who already don't have electricity. That's incredible.
1: Right, yes. And uh, there's 400 million people in India alone who don't have electricity. And um, it's a striking thing. You can go into a fairly large village in India at night, and there are no lights that are not like kerosene lanterns. Really? And um, wow. and uh, just for fun, those kerosene lanterns give off all these toxic fumes. They're horrible. You know, if you ever went camping, um, you know, as a Boy Scout or something like that, they they had your Coleman stove and your Coleman lantern. They told you not to put it in your um in your in your tent right. for two reasons. First, it might catch on fire, and the second reason is it releases these toxic um, fumes and it could kill you. So you know not only do they not have electricity these the substitutes that they have these kerosene lamps or 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 dung fires or whatever are really bad and so <laughs> it uh, and it, so it's an urgent human necessity to help these 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 people out
0: yeah, absolutely in the book you get into kind of the history of energy crises or or at least perceived energy crises it, it right. seems like a lot of the issues we've had with providing enough energy to the world have been worsened by people thinking we've hit the uh, the idea of peak oil or thinking that we are already running out? Is is it partly a mental game, uh, solving this energy yeah,
1: issue? Yeah. Um, one of the very odd things to me, and again, this is one of those things I thought, I, I found out and I thought, holy cow, I didn't know this, is almost since, you know, oil, the oil industry began in 1859, people said we're going to run out. You know, first, you know, coal began before that, and they said we're going to run out of coal, and they said we're going to run out of oil, and there's these periodic waves of panic uh, about us running out. The most recent was uh, just a just a few years ago. In fact, when I started writing the book, it was full-fledged peak oilism. You know, you could get peak oil newsletters. There was all these um, investment guys who are saying, you know, what to do when civilization collapses. If you go on Amazon, you can find all these books about uh, uh, peak oil. And they lead people to do crazy things. Uh, One of the worst ones was that there was a wave of panic in the 1970s that we were going to um, run out of oil. And Jimmy Carter, who is arguably the most environmentally minded president that the United States has ever had, Mm -hmm. um, responded to this by uh, vowing to triple the amount of coal that was burned. And um, (laughs) he was pretty successful. And you know how people in New England and you know, where I am now are constantly always complaining about the acid rain and pollution that drifts over from the power plants in the Middle West where you grew up?
0: Uh, You've probably I heard about this. I apologize, and I'd believe
1: it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's your <laughs> fault, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, those coal plants were all built in the 1980s as a result of the complete you know, um, liberalization of the laws by Jimmy Carter to encourage the use of coal because we we're about to run out of oil. So, you know, the vast amount of carbon um, that goes into the air is, you know, a big part of it is in direct response to that policy. And similarly, we've been involved in really crazy stuff in the Middle East, and a lot of it has to do with, we have to get the oil, there's going to run out of oil, and these waves of oil panic. It also, though, has had this salutary effect since the 19th century of of people saying, we're going to run out of oil the place to get um, energy from is, is the sun. And so there's been, it's been driven this effort to develop um, solar energy that goes back to the um, 1860s and 70s.
0: Yeah, that and the whole history, and there, there's so much in this book that's amazing, but the, the whole history of people trying to roll out solar power, it's, I had no idea they began to try to create solar power in the 1860s and 70s, uh, mostly by generating steam with big mirrors and things like that.
1: Yeah, and these contraptions are amazing. Yeah, I know there was yeah. one that was called the Puro Helioferro um, that was demonstrated at the um, 19, I think it was 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. And um, it was 40,000 mirrors all rigged up. It got so hot um, that it killed birds that <laughs> flew above it. <laughs> and they would rain down, I guess. Um, and uh, it generated the hottest temperatures ever, um, ever ever seen on Earth at that point. But, you know, the problem was that Oil, coal, and natural gas were always just so much more convenient that uh, the diffuse power of solar power or wind was never able to compete with them, no matter what they did. And um, for decade after decade, people would try and fail. And it wasn't really until quite recently that people began considering the byproducts of coal, oil, and natural gas, which is the carbon dioxide. And then that sort of put a thumb on the scale and people started um, thinking that maybe the solar power stuff wasn't for nuts after all.
0: Yeah, the historical progression, it's funny to me anyway, it, it, because they keep saying, oh, I finally figured out a way to do solar power and then the world finds more coal or oil or something like right, that right. and then doesn't want it. It's <laughs> until
1: right now. Yeah, and there's a tremendous number of um, disappointed investors. Uh, one of the lines that I heard that I really like came from a guy who told me that every new technology needs at least one over-optimistic investor to go bankrupt (laughs) developing it. And um, if you think about it, this really often happens. With solar power, there are hundreds of people who went bankrupt trying to develop it to get to where we are now. And they're all driven by the belief that my God, this time we really were going to run out of oil and they were going to have to switch to solar power.
0: Yeah, you pick out uh, as early as 1908, President Teddy Roosevelt held a summit of every U.S. state governor to consider what happens when we run out of oil imminently. And then, and even a little bit earlier, there's a scheme of Andrew Carnegie trying to save up a bunch of oil because we were about to run out, and then instead he accidentally just bought good places to continue to endlessly pull oil out of Pennsylvania. It's yes, a exactly. complete flip. It's amazing.
1: <laughs> right. So he, he made a, he, you know, he bet a fortune, um, or you a know, large sum of money on the premise that oil was going to run out. He made this sort of giant pool of oil, and instead it didn't run out, um, but people still wanted more, so he was able to sell it at a big profit. So that was the beginning of his fortune.
0: Right. <laughs> he was wrong in the best way. Nail it. Um. Right, right.
1: He was wrong in a way that I have never been wrong in my life, which is that uh, he was wrong and made a huge sum of money being wrong.
0: And then as far as um, solar and also other renewable energy projects, which is more of a wizard Borlaug solution and which is more of a vote profit kind of solution?
1: Well, that's actually a really interesting question, because a lot of the wizards who are in, involved are, are pretty interested in these giant solar projects. Like, um, and Some of them are called concentrated solar power, where they take a huge area of desert, plant lots and lots of mirrors on it, and they focus on something like a, a big silo full of salt. And it melts all the salt, you know, gets incredibly hot, and the salt stays very, very hot and drives a steam turbine, and that powers electricity through the night. And so you, you, and so it essentially stores um, solar power. What's really interesting is a lot of profits don't like this, and the reason is is that what they're upset about, um, what they don't like, is these giant centralized facilities, which seem to them, you know, working at an inhuman scale and what they really want is networked solar power you know i have a 7 kilowatt array on my roof and our neighbor does too and they would like you know essentially all of the people in the um, area to be interconnected and uh, power to be flowing back and forth so that somebody who's House has a cloud right now will be powered by somebody you know a few blocks over where the cloud isn't, and this kind of network vision and then we 'd all have batteries um that would store the extra solar solar power and so there wouldn't be huge utilities, but rather you know neighborhood collectives that's a very attractive I- I- idea and um i don't know any reason that it's not physically possible I'm not sure it's economically feasible, but then again. You know, things that turn out are economically infeasible, if that's right, unfeasible, infeasible, whatever the right word is, um, you know, often with new tech, uh, developments turn out to be actually more practical than people think.
0: Because, yeah, also, throughout the book, there are times where something that I expected would be more complicated. There's sort of a side benefit where it's easier, like even the the process of, with food, feeding animals with grain, it also, I learned from it there, I think it's pronounced silage. There's also a way to yeah. just through the process of making grain, we end up with a lot of loose plant matter that is like optimal for feeding animals. So actually right. there's like exactly. kind of couched benefits there.
1: Um, one of the things that that uh, you you have is in the Middle West. They have these big um, plants that produce high fructose corn syrup and alcohol and and things like that from grain. And what's taken out of that is the you know garbage, so to speak. But that is often called distiller's grain. Is really just garbage for making high fructose corn syrup or alcohol or whatever. And that turns out to be terrific um, cattle feed. It's probably even better than whole grain. Certainly better than yeah. corn, which uh, um, plain corn cattle have a hard time digesting
0: they love garbage they're way into it
1: yeah. yeah yeah i live in the country as i said there you know down the road from me is a small farm and um you know they have a couple cows and um pigs and you know they 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 uh, slaughter them for meat and uh, what they eat is the you know leftovers the uh you know when you harvest all the peas and beans the the plants are are there, and they feed them those, or is they, you know, they they have um, they grow a little bit of wheat, and they take the stalks that aren't there and feed them those, and uh, it gets turned into pork chops. So yeah,
0: so often, you know, this is this That's is right. how
1: things have been going for a long time.
0: Yeah, we looked at these first three problems: water, food, and energy, and then the I shouldn't call them problems; even they're challenges. They're things to figure out.
1: Yeah, challenges. let let's rebrand them. Talking about branding, let's rebrand yeah. them opportunities. You should call them opportunities. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, the four fun games. Uh, but with the, with the first three, I am curious how we reconcile all four of these because I feel like there's a pretty good argument to be made that if we work out the first three things of enough water for 10 billion, enough food for 10 billion, enough energy for 10 billion, will that lead to so much human activity that we fail to prevent climate change, the, the fourth challenge from, from overwhelming us? It seems like solving three of them will make the fourth one worse. It's quite possible. You know, for instance, oh, no. if we
1: decide the way to provide enough energy for everybody is to mine all the world's coal and, um, you know, make, make a whole bunch of coal plants, which is what India and China have in the past threatened to do, you, you, would, be, you would be quite right. But it is also possible that we could do these in ways that, that help with climate change. You know, certainly agriculture is responsible for a lot of climate change. If you build giant desalination plants, those will use huge amounts of energy and if that energy it comes from, you know, coal or oil or natural gas, which is generally the case now, they will yeah. release huge amounts into the air. But if they are in hot areas and they come from solar power, they will certainly not release very much carbon dioxide into the, um, into, into the air. So I think you're, I guess what you're saying is this scenario is certainly something to think about, but it's not inherent that more activity, you know, does worse for nature. And the example I always give is I live in, as I said, in Western Massachusetts, if you were here mm-hmm. in 1800, you wouldn't have seen a tree in sight. The entire area had been deforested, and there's massive erosion problems. It was really a mess. Oh, wow. And now, 70% of the state, 75% of the state, is covered by trees. It's in better shape than it was during the time of Paul Revere. And yet there is much more, you know, as we say, economic activity taking place. And there's many more people. So it isn't necessarily the case that more people equals more pollution.
0: Yeah, it's actually, uh, to draw on pop culture, it's such a, that area is so lovely and forested now that it's where J.K. Rowling put her American version of Hogwarts. It's up on a mountain yeah. somewhere in Western Mass.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And the incredible thing is that she appears to believe that we have really tall mountains there. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the description is these sort of snow-capped peaks, and I'm thinking, like, really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> in the book, I, I you, I think, really elegantly, have the reader first just accept that climate change is real to then consider its ramifications and then later go through why it is the scientific consensus. If one of our listeners is going to be at a dinner or a party or something and needs to explain why climate change is real, what could, what could they say in, in like a minute or two? What would be the, the okay. simplest way to first, get to
1: it? I would argue that there's two separate things that go on that often get mixed up. One is you know, accepting how climate change works, and the second is saying... Therefore, we have to do X. So let's just talk about what climate change is, without saying whether we have to do anything about it. Okay, just just talk about it. And the fundamental mechanisms are actually pretty easy to under understand. And part of the reason that I wanted to write this section of the book is that that an awful lot of the discussion about climate change that seems sort of silly is because neither the opponents of climate change to get people who say oh it's a hoax and so forth or the people who say no it's the end of the world really actually understand how it works and they could though and the way it works is this you know the sun spews out all this these different types of light on us 24 7 right so there's you know infrared light ultraviolet light visible light radio waves x-rays you name it you know just all comes about a third of that stuff is bounced off the atmosphere or absorbed by clouds It doesn't make it to the to 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 the ground and so you got two thirds, most of which is visible light. As it happens, that mm-hmm. hits the ground, the ocean, and vegetation, and it gets absorbed, and that heats up the ground, the ocean, and the vegetation, and they give back not just any kind of light. They give back infrared light, and infrared light is the kind like in old James Bond movies where they have those big binoculars that let you see in the dark, and you can see the heat of yeah. people in the dark.
0: Oh, I love That's it. That's
1: infrared light. That's what they're seeing. They're seeing infrared light, and that infrared light is some weird but very basic chemistry that goes on. 99% of the atmosphere is made out of nitrogen and oxygen. 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. They can't absorb infrared light. And if the atmosphere entirely consisted of nitrogen and oxygen, all the infrared radiation would go out into space and we would just freeze. So it's a very good thing that there's this 1% of it that's water vapor. And water vapor can absorb this infrared radiation. And then it Molecules vibrate around, and it bangs into the nitrogen and oxygen and transfers some of the energy that way, and that heats up the Earth just nice enough to where we can live in it. So the whole mechanism is pretty cool, and it has this escape valve. To prevent for the water vapor from you know, heating us up too much, there are certain wavelengths of infrared radiation that let's just pass through into space.
0: They're mm-hmm. like windows,
1: and the um, light just shoots right, right through them. Now there's this weird bit of total bad luck which is that carbon dioxide just happens to absorb exactly those wavelengths of light that the water vapor lets pass through. Right. It's like we're sitting in a bathtub and you know it's at a nice warm cozy level we aren't drowning in it or anything and water is pouring into it and that's the infrared um, light going into it. And then we have little tiny holes in the bathtub that let out just enough water to keep the um, bathtub level and everything safe. Now, take a little piece of gum and plug up one of those holes. That's what carbon dioxide does. And very slowly, the water is going to start to rise. And that's what we're doing. We're plugging up the holes and very slowly, the temperature is starting to, uh, to rise. And it's just basic nineteenth-century chemistry and one of the reasons that scientists get really exasperated when they say oh this is just a hoax and all this sort of thing is that if this is wrong a whole lot of chemistry you know high school chemistry is wrong too because all of the science you know about the wavelengths of light that get absorbed and you know how light works that was all worked out in the nineteenth century and a vast amount of chemistry and physics would have to be rewritten if for this to be wrong now so then you say, "Okay, well, this is all certain, why is there any uncertainty at all?" And the reason is there's these secondary effects that have to do with the structure of the atmosphere and the rate at which green plants suck carbon dioxide out of the air and the different flows of air across the continents and all this sort of thing that don 't change the basic physical mechanism but change the the sort of rate and the locations of the areas that heat up mm-hmm. and so that's what all the uncertainty is, all these sort of secondary mechanisms. But the basic part of it is is absolutely crystal clear, and it's 19th century um, uh, chemistry. And so sometimes I get into these arguments and I say, hey, hey, let's just you know, not talk about 19th century chemistry. You, know, you can talk about the actual areas of uncertainty. Clouds are another big one. And then you can say, and even more uncertainty is, what should we do about it?
0: Right. The book very interestingly picks out that there is a range of temperature increase on Earth that the scientists think could happen. I think it's from 2.7 degrees to 8.1 degrees. 2.7 is manageable, 8.1, most of the world would be desertified.
1: Yeah, that would be really bad. And then also that range is not even definite. Right, and the reason that there's this range is all these secondary effects, and they're very hard to control for. And so, and what that really means is that there's a chance Not that large of a chance, but a definite real chance that not that much could happen. But there's also a chance, again, not that large of a chance, but a very definite real chance that something really bad could happen. And we face those kinds of things in our life all the time. You know, every time you get in a car, there is a small chance that, you know, some lunatic could uh, T-bone you and uh, you would go immediately to the hospital. And so what do we do for that? We have insurance. You know, and you pay a certain amount for insurance. Other types of insurance are like you know, depending on where you live there's a small chance that somebody could burglarize your house so you, you build locks, you, you put in locks, you, you have an alarm, maybe you have one of those alarms that are connected to the police or, or what have you and you pay a certain amount and you take certain measures to protect yourself and in a certain sense climate change seems to me the same kind of thing there's this chance that things could be really bad. And you know, you can argue about how big it is, but there's a bunch of measures that we could take to protect ourselves. And the question is, you know, how many of them should we do? Because obviously you wouldn't, if you're worried about burglary, you don't want to like completely block all your windows so you can never open them and, uh, you know, have a steel door, you know, all the things that you could do to make your house into like a fortress. You would never do that. But instead you try to take reasonable measures.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love how biographical this book is uh, because it looks at Vogt's entire life and Borlaug's entire life. And in many ways, it seems like both of them got into the sciences that they're in by lucky accidents. Like Vogt started out uh, doing quite a bit of birdwatching, among other things. And Borlaug uh, went to Yeah, but
1: was a French literature major. But then he started birdwatching, and it just so happened that he was around a bunch of very prominent ornithologists who were sort of in the same birdwatching club.
0: Yeah, and then and he became one of our most important environmental people and thinkers, and his right. his books changed the way we think. And then Borlaug was a kid from Northeast Iowa who, as you say in the book, he he I think partly got into all this because he wanted to play for the Chicago Cubs. He loves sports right. and, and great. Right. And the way to do that was to go sports. to college.
1: So he was the first generation to go to go to college, and then. Then he became a forestry major because he liked the outdoors, <laughs> and then it became clear that he was not going to be a major leaguer, and so there he was a forestry major, and then he didn't get a job, so his wife said, well, why don't you be a graduate student for a little while, learn more about forestry, and then you see if you can get, do better on the forestry job market, and he ended up getting a Ph.D. in um, plant pathology, and then by an extraordinarily weird series of coincidences, his old college professor got him this job working in Mexico, where. He had never been I mean, he'd never been out of the country. He didn't speak any language. He'd never bred plants. I mean he was like the worst qualified guy you can possibly imagine. And on top of that, he's breeding wheat. Which is got this super complicated genome. It's five times it's five times more genes than people, and there's and plants can do all sorts of weird things that people can't. So it has three complete genomes in every cell. So it has six copies of every gene. It's a really complicated problem. He doesn't even know what DNA is. Nobody does at that time. Nobody knows what a gene is. Right. And there he is in Mexico with no tools, trying to breed wheat.
0: I think there's one part in the book where Borlaug had gone to the University of Minnesota, where the top. Plant breeder in the in the world was teaching. Borlaug didn't take classes with him and didn't run into him until he was well into his whole experiment. And the guy was like, "Hey, here are the basics of plant breeding. You need to know these yes. things." <laughs> and you're doing them all <laughs> wrong, right?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I, I don't. Know, I feel like there's a lot of luck and chance involved in in people like the two of them being crucial to our whole approach to this uh where where will we get the next scientists, the next thinkers for this is it just as much chance and luck and who comes along or, or who can we look to
1: this is a good question because i sometimes i look at the way that these people got into this and think like oh my god what are the chances this is going to happen again but then i think this is probably actually the way it has always been you know people are just sort of stumbling around in the dark and if you have enough people um some good things will happen so I, I don't know the answer to your question, but I also not sure whether I should get worried by the fact that so much luck was involved. Maybe that's just the way it is with human history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And good for us for the, I guess the metaphor in the book is not hitting the edge of the petri dish, like microbes that right. overdo their environment. Maybe, maybe we'll luck our way through this by also being very educated and working very hard. That sounds good to me. Yeah,
1: that sounds good to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah, You know, and uh, if you if you have kids, you can say to yourself, okay, I'm not necessarily do- dooming them to a terrible future. Maybe we'll all get lucky.
0: You mean it so positively, and, and I love the tone of it, too. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Charles C. Mann, who is a scholar, a gentleman, and able to roll with deep-cut Pottermore references, because he's a gem. And as we turn into our footnotes, hey, are you one of the Disney Seven Dwarves hi hoeing to work? Because it looks like you footnotes readers will find a bunch of gems, including the intro for Charles C. Mann's brand new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists, and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. It came out a couple days ago. It's available wherever fine books are sold. I'm also linking to one of Charles' previous books. It's called 1491. That book reformatted my understanding of the continent and planet I live on. It might reformat yours, too, if you don't realize that 1491 is the year before Columbus arrived in the Americas. So that's, it's about that world and what it was like first. And there's a few topics we didn't quite get to in the episode that I want to link you to now. One is the Haber-Bosch process. Charles' book explores how those two chemists, named Haber and Bosch, were a proto-Norman Borlaug. I'm linking a Smithsonian article about Fritz Haber, one of the fellas, and his fascinating life. Another footnote is a Smithsonian piece by Charles C. Mann. He writes online, too. How does he do it? The piece is a book called The Population Bomb. In Charles's book, there's a through line of population panics, mainly in the 20th century. People freaking out about how many people we are going to have. And the article and book get into our history of deciding there's too many people on Earth and our history of not always reacting in the best way. Because history is fascinating. Because being alive is more interesting than you think it is. Premise of this podcast. Oh, yeah. And this is a deep footnotes section this week. We've got that Potter reference with Ilvermorny. We've got stuff about the photosynthesis processes we explored. And I think we mentioned offhand that Cleveland's rivers caught on fire. And we said it in a very casual way. And some of you might have found that remarkable because, you know, quite a few of you may view rivers as being full of water. And water is a very difficult substance to light on fire. Water, it's sort of an anti-fire, let's call it. So I'm going to footnote a piece about the June 1969 Cuyahoga River fire from Cleveland State University. They wrote it up. And it's about a time Cleveland's river was polluted enough to be on fire. Here's the money quote from that piece. Quote, Initially, the fire drew little attention, either locally or nationally. The 69 fire was not even the first time that the river burned. Dating back to the beginning of the 20th century, the river had caught fire on several other occasions. So our past was so polluted, not only did Cleveland's river caught on fire, it happened a bunch of times before anyone cared. Right? That's insane. And as Charles said on the show, if things used to be that bad, and now we've come this far away from that, maybe we got a shot. Maybe we can do it. Anyhow, a few more things about the Cracked Podcast. We are performing this live on Saturday, February 10th at 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset in L.A. Not not performing this, like I'm not going to reenact this episode. It'll be a new one. It's a movie spectacular. The Oscars are happening in the wider world. We'll be celebrating movies with secretly terrifying characters and plot lines. Movies that have become horrifying over time or were just horrifying from jump. I'll be joined by a crack panel of Dan Hopper, Amy Nicholson, and Dave Schilling because I am the luckiest boy. Tickets aren't quite on sale yet for it. We'll link them as soon as they are. In the meantime, mark your calendars. And as far as this show goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Cody Scully and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right. Social media, the thing that will soon have a couple billion more users, as if that's what the world needs. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmidty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more crack Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. You seem like a curious person. Do you want to find out what happens when women break the rules? Well, subscribe to Unladylike right now in your podcast app. In each episode, hosts Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin do obsessive research to find surprising stories about women's lives. And this season, comedians such as Joyelle Johnson, Aparna Nancherla, and Joe Firestone will stop by to share their takes on smashing the patriarchy. So add a delightful dose of feminist rage to your week. Subscribe to Unladylike in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.